0: I've been so excited about sharing with you today from God's Word out of Matthew chapter 5, partly because it is, is on the, a topic that I think all of us are interested in. It touches every one of us. It's one that I probably have struggled with in an unusual way. The title of our, our series theme is The Pursuit of Happiness, and I know that for every one of us that is an interest, we may not state because we feel a little guilty about it. (laughs) In fact, I think the way that I grew up and somehow in my mind got to thinking is, you should not be pursuing happiness. You should be pursuing holiness. And I can just hear everybody going, amen, (laughs) amen. You know, you be holy. You don't worry about being happy. God didn't make you to be happy. But yet, what I'm finding in Scripture is that God created us to be happy, and that's okay. It's not only okay, it is what God desires and what He intends for you is for you to be blessed, happy, fulfilled, at peace, full of joy. And I realized that the word happy has, has probably been dumbed down in our culture a little bit, kind of like the word awesome, like everything is awesome. Remember one, someone said to me one time, the only thing awesome is God. <laughs> and that that's that's probably true. And, and happiness can be happenstance or just, you know, I'm happy ab- about something. It'd be a very superficial word when yet really... In our text, it's a deep, abiding, strong, powerful word of, of satisfaction, of joy, of fulfillment, and of peace. And God created you to enjoy that. Now, He also wants you to be holy. And you cannot be holy on your own. <laughs> Only He can make you holy. And you cannot be happy on your own. Only He can bring you happiness. And the more I've studied this, I've come to this conclusion that happiness and holiness are not mutually exclusive. One cannot dwell without the other. You cannot have holiness without real happiness. And you cannot have real happiness without holiness. But well, when I, th- I think of this, the word markarios, it means happy, blessed. And, and when we read in the very beginning of this what we call the Beatitudes, it we, blessed are they, blessed are they, but the, the literal translation is happy, happy. And it's a weighty word. It's what God wants for every one of us. But as we enter into this, we're going to see that the, the words of Jesus are both profound and paradoxical. In other words, they're profound words, but they make you scratch your head because it's a, a seeming contradiction. How can, how can he be saying to us this? It sounds like the opposite of what I've heard. And that's exactly what the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, was by Jesus in this place. Now, he probably repeated this many other places during his three and a half years of ministry. But in this place, he is speaking words that are profound and they're paradoxical because they are, they're counter to culture. They are counter to popular values. They are not what you've heard. It is not what we have practiced. But I think it, what it does is it calls Christianity and at that time, Judaism into authenticity, because it had no authenticity. People almost mocked it. It's not, it's not real. And I would say that today that the cry of the rest of the world is, where is the authenticity of Christianity? Because what they say doesn't really match the way they live. Will Durant, you may recognize that name. He is not a, was not a Christian, But a historian said this In any generation, there may be eight to ten people that will still be talked about 300 years later. In all of Western civilization, the person who stands above all others is Christ. He undoubtedly was the most permanent influence on our thoughts, but not on our actions. And that's an important modification. Our actions are very seldom Christian, but our theology often is. We wish we could behave like Christ. We do not. So Jesus is calling these people. He has disciples, his followers in front of him. He has the crowds, and he also has, as we mentioned, the religious bodies of the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, all various types of uh, activists out there judging him, but he's calling them into authenticity. And that's the context of what we come to here on the Sermon on the Mount. The teaching of Jesus drew a crowd. He would draw thousands of people to come why well one was his character his person was unique he was perfect he he cared about people he wasn't building something he didn't have an angle on you it was his miracles he did what was impossible and his teaching he taught As it says, as one who had authority, there was weight to what he had to say. It made sense. And they hoped that he would be the Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. And he was the Messiah. But they were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from Rome, the Roman domination, the Roman Empire. But Jesus was looking to change much more than that. (laughs) He was wanting to change the world and change it for all eternity, and to change every human heart. This was a personal message. He's speaking from a sloping mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. People are listening, and he speaks. This is one of two mountains we've talked about, the mountain of Sinai in the Old Testament, where Moses stood and received the law of God. And now this mountain where Jesus is speaking to them, these beatitudes, there's a list and a list. How do we put that together? And typically what I hear is, oh, that's the Old Testament, and that's the New Testament. But really, it's one fluid story. Don't ever forget that. When you read your Bible, it's going to be easier to understand the New Testament to understand the old, but it is one fluid story about one person. It is Jesus. And it is the good news. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And it's one beautiful unfolding story. And it says, he sat down. This is when, when the rabbi sits down, everybody gets quiet. Just the opposite of what we do here. I didn't try that this week, you know, sitting down for you. It says, he sat down and he opened his mouth and he spoke. We would call this an oracle. And there were two kinds of oracles or prophetic sayings. One was called a blessing and one was called a curse. And you typically you would read this, woe, woe to you. In other words, this is a warning. Both of these flow out of love. The love is wanting to bless you. God wants to bless you. When he says, whoa, it's like when we go, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Why do you say that to your kids? You don't want them to get hurt. You don't want them to to be damaged. You don't want something bad to happen to them. Both of these are prophetic utterances or oracles. We get the word beatitudes from the Latin word uh, beatus, which means blessings. And when I think of, uh, I put this up on a refrigerator this last week. This is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. It, to me, is one of the greatest verses. You ought to write this down, and you can put it on your refrigerator if you do that kind of thing. But this is what it says. This is a prayer. This is what the, the priest would say over the people. It says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. I thought, wow. I'm going to start praying that for all my kids, all the people in this church, everybody I know. But that's a blessing. That's, that's, and and the, the word that we get, blessing, is happiness. God wants happiness, joy, fulfillment for you. So our text this morning is Matthew 5, 1 through 3. We'll focus primarily on verse 3. It says, One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And this is the text here. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven... Is theirs. So how do we how do we interpret that? That that makes you stop and think. Happy are the poor. <laughs> okay. Is this, which I think a lot of people will interpret this as, well, this is just for the future. Um, Why you live on this earth, folks? Life is hard, and then you die. Okay. Now we have got. A wonderful future, but while we're here, we're just going to have to gut it out. So all of these blessed promises are about when we die and go to heaven. And to be honest with you, I think about that more often now, about getting a new body, <clears throat> being in a place where there's no sin, there's no conflict, there are no problems, everything is perfect. <clears throat> it's better than creation was at the beginning. I mean, you think about that? Well, you get older, you think about it. <clears throat> but we can tend to think that you know, the blessedness, the happiness, the joy, the peace is all for later. But here's the, here's the interesting part about the announcement of His kingdom when he, says, when he says to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has inaugurated His kingdom. He has come to inaugurate His kingdom, His reign and His rule, His lordship. So it is inaugurated. It is present. But it is also future. And it is true, we don't take anything away from the blessedness of heaven and eternal life. Uh, I think this, it's good to think about that from time to time, because it helps us to realize that all the things we go through here on this life are temporary. It's good to think about it. But these promises are not just for the future. They are for the present. So it's for now as well when you read through the blessed are they blessed are they or happy are they is this we love a checklist don't we i won't ask you to raise your hand if you like a checklist because but i love checklists in fact sometimes i even put something down and check it off even after i already did it because i love checking things off and we're kind of wired that way you know if i do this this and this and this and this then i'll be happy And that's not what this is saying. That's not what this is saying. Eight ways to find happiness. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And so I get up and I just have my punch list. What it is saying is this. These are the evidences, the joy, the happiness, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, and the peace that are characteristic of the person who follows Jesus. So there are not eight things to do, not ten things to do, not a hundred things to do. There's one thing to do as you follow him. You know, Jesus didn't walk by the Sea of the Galilee and say, become a Christian, become a Christian. Anybody want to go to heaven? Say, I do. Nobody wants to go to heaven. What did he say to them? He said, follow me. So that means faith and believing in Him, but it also means leaving my nets, my, what I'm doing, and following Him. In other words, He becomes Master, Lord, and King. He is King of His kingdom. He is Lord of my life. It is not just that He is Lord of the universe. He is Lord of my life. Now, God has given you the ability to choose and He puts the responsibility on you. Do I do do that? You say that, uh, and, and it's interesting because if God did not give Adam and Eve free choice, love could not exist. You realize that? Otherwise you have robots. Love could not exist in this world if God did not give Adam and Eve free choice. But the moment he gave them free choice... You say, uh-oh, what's going to happen? But he's remedied, remedied this through Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying is when we turn from the authority of my own self-kingdom and the world's kingdom, and I turn to live in his kingdom, and he is my authority, my life, my rule, my Lord, my master, I follow him with my whole heart, then these are the evidences that are going to be in your life. And they're counter to the way the world will live because the world will will live by, hey, I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to find happiness over here. And the world will pursue happiness in every other way and never find it. But it doesn't make sense to bow the knee, to submit, to obey, to to follow Christ and surrender all of my rights to do these things to one person and find happiness. Exactly. This is what he is saying. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. So it is a paradox, isn't it? Happy are the poor. (laughs) You know, we have conversations around our house, and and it's like, you know what? Being rich and having money doesn't make you happy, but it sure does make things easier. (laughs) Happy are the poor. This is, this is hard to process, and, and particularly in this culture and this day and time where poor was different than what we see as poor here. I'm not trying to minimize our present poor here, but when you're in the Middle East and this era and this time, poor, was what, it would shock you. A lot of you, it would shock you. You can still see it in places in this world. Now, when he says the word poor, happy are the poor and realize their need for him. There are two two words in the Greek New Testament, which it was written in Greek originally and translated into English. There are two two different words that are both translated poor. The first word, is, the word is penes, which means you have to work so you're not poor. And so uh, you have a job, you're working, but you know, you're just trying to keep your head above water. That's, that's the case for a lot of people. But they have a job, they have an ability, they have a talent, they're able to do something, but they're not rich and they don't have a savings account. The second word that is also translated into English, the same word poor, is takas. And it is you are totally unable to do anything. No talent, no craft, no skill, no way to earn a living. You are impoverished. And you cower and cringe like a beggar. See the difference in that? One has, you know what, I'm having to work for a living. I try to keep my head above water. The other one is, I I have no hope. And the second word is the word that's used here. Blessed are those that are impoverished. They have no hope, no way, which makes it even more startling. Now, in the day and time that Christ lived, there are four ways you could become poor Uh, one was laziness, one is calamity. Things happen. Famine, sickness, health, death. One would be exploitation. You're taken advantage of by political leaders or rich people or someone did something to you. And the last one would be that for righteousness sake or you would say that I've chosen, like John the Baptist, made a decision or Paul or others that would follow Christ and not pursue wealth. But he is not talking about physical poverty. And that becomes pretty obvious. When you read through the Bible, you'll see that you have people like Abraham who were very rich, Solomon who was very rich, David who was very rich. Jesus is not condemning having wealth. What is he saying? This is a message about humility and dependence and trust. That is the message. So, to be poor, and as it says in some other translations, poor in spirit, or you're poor and recognize your need for Him. Now, the two types of poor people, which one would recognize their need more? The poor that's doing, I'm I'm keeping my head above water, I've got a job, I'm doing things. Well, I could use a little help. But what he wants us to see is that you have no way, no ability, no chance to survive in life unless someone intervenes for you. So here's what he is saying, and this is what I want, I want you to understand. The happy life, the joyful life, the blessed life, the full life, the life at peace is the life that is completely dependent upon God. It is absolutely and totally dependent upon God. Sometimes I do, but <laughs> you know we won't stare too long as everybody's figuring out who that is. It's uh, got that going. Siri has joined us in our service, and for those of you who are listening on by by tape, that uh, Siri has joined in. Not sure if she's watching. One of the one of the most beautiful illustrations of this, and I think is consistent throughout the Bible is cup. You know when Jesus talks about, let this cup pass for me, and this cup, the cup. And and if you could picture it this way, when your cup is full, Jesus can't fill it. When your cup is half full, he can't really fill it. When your cup is a little full, he's not going to completely fill it. What he's saying is the cup that is so empty, so dry, so destitute will experience the complete and absolute fullness that Jesus brings. So it doesn't mean you go sell all you have or quit your job or move to another state. It's you, you get a mindset, an attitude that Jesus is Lord of my life. He is King of my life and I trust him for everything. I lean on him with my whole heart, and I follow him. And what will be soon characteristic of your life are the same things that were characteristic of his life. What was characteristic of life? You read through the Beatitudes, and you say, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Just like his Father. And so when you're following him, now you start to realize these are the characteristics that are about my life. There is joy and peace and contentment. There is hope. And, it, and none of your circumstances may have changed at all around you. <laughs> but it's what He does here. This is the kingdom that He wants to reign on the earth as your heart. He has inaugurated His kingdom and will fulfill that in the future. You cannot add to something You already have. So when your cup is half full, you don't see your need. It's a quarter full, you don't see your need. You don't help him out. Jesus is not wanting to add something to your life to make it better. He is wanting to completely change your life. What is the enemy? The enemy to this is not physical poverty. The enemy that we're talking about that is out to destroy your life is pride. What keeps people from trusting in Jesus for eternal life? It's their pride. What is it keeps you from having joy and happiness and peace? It's your pride. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can get it done. And if Jesus were sarcastic, he would probably say, knock yourself out. (laughs) That's probably what I would say. But... You can keep pursuing all those things and never find the joy that He's intended. Pride comes in many ways, in many forms, and pride is is me feeling like you know what I'm a pretty good person. I, I I've I've been to church. I tithe. I, you know, I um, you know, I've been kind to people. I you know, you start tithing, you know, you're you're full of yourself. And. If, 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 if you think that, you know, the way that I came to salvation and eternal life is, is 99% God and 1% me. That is not salvation. That is not eternal life. Because eternal life is 100% Jesus. Here's the key. Living the Christian life is 100% Jesus. And we drift. I think we switch our theology a lot of times. You know, that we're saved by grace through faith. But, Lord, I'll take it from here. I got this. You know, I'm going to keep these Ten Commandments. I'm going to keep these Beatitudes. I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to go to church. Now, all those things are okay. Jesus said, you know what, it's good to go and do those things. but, But the key is this, that the total and absolutely trusting in Him is what He wants you to do. So, Jesus must empty us before he fills us. Jesus must deconstruct us before he reconstructs us. We must be humbled before we're exalted. Now, have you ever wondered why over the course of this past year, there can be many reasons for this, why you're struggling or there's things going on in your life right now? that may seem really frustrating, not going right. He's saying here, I want you to see your need for me. Because when you see your need for me, you're going to find joy and peace and happiness. And so out of his love, remember I said out of his love, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And out of his love, he said, blessed are you, happy are you. And sometimes we get off onto this independent spirit where we kind of just, I've got it from here, God. And our life is not following the path of joy and happiness and peace. And God will bring into our lives out of his great love a woe. Woe. And it's not because he's punishing you. He doesn't punish his children. He corrects them. He brings them back. And so when you're humbled, God brings humility into your life. Some of you have had that happen this year, probably all of us. God humbles you so that you you can see now again your need for Him. And when you feel your need, your cup is dry and empty, and He fills it. What I'd like for us to walk away with today is the blessed, happy life. Full of joy and peace and contentment is living in his kingdom, following him, letting him reign and rule over my heart in every area. The kingdom, yes, has a big worldwide dimension and is to come, but it is also his kingdom is here in my heart and in your heart. The timing is future, but the timing is present. There are two parts of this when I think of life. is eternal life, which is probably f- f- my, my greatest concern for everyone in this room is do you know that you have eternal life? That would be my greatest concern for you. So here's what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. <clears throat> God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Isn't that a <clears throat> powerful statement? It's not church membership. It's not good deeds. It's not giving money. It's not, you know what, I've lived a pretty good life. It is It is a gift from God that no one deserves and no one can earn now that's eternal life now i don't want to take for granted that everyone understands that but let let this sink into you because this is the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life is to receive the free gift of eternal life and there is nothing that will bring greater joy and happiness and peace into your life than this okay but that's not all What else is this is that God wants to bring joy into your life, not just with knowing where you're going when you die and being His child. He wants to bring joy and peace and happiness into your present life today. And how can He do that? How will He do that? The present life happiness is when you learn to depend on Jesus for everything. Now, you might ask, how do I do that? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. Um, Let me give you three ways practically, and I hope hope all these will end practically. What are three ways that I can practice depending on God through Jesus for everything in my life? Number one, depend on His wisdom. Depend on His wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you the path to take. Isn't that great? The reason I'm sharing that verse with you is because I probably quote it back to myself every day of my life. It's because it's so good, it's like an anchor point. So two things I do when I get up: Hey, you know what? I'm 62 years old. I know what I'm doing. You can tell I'm pretty dumb now, right? So I know. Hey, you know what? I've got experience. I've got life. I've got ability. My ne- my neck may be a little sore, but hey, there's a lot of things I can do. Okay, but and I and I this. Means you, st- you still work hard. You still get up in the morning. You make your bed. You get a shower. You go to work. But the reliance is that on the decisions you make, that everything you acknowledge Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, everything you do, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Him. And He will show you the way to go. Isn't that powerful? and we should do that every day. But to be honest with you, some days I forget. (laughs) I get up, and I just kind of go do my stuff. And then I hit a snag, and the Lord uses that snag to remind me, hey, trust in me on everything you do. And when you learn to do this, it's going to bring joy and happiness and peace in your life to trust in God's wisdom. Listen, folks, I need it. You need it. Every one of us need it. And so when we're poor in spirit, or we're We're poor in humility, we're recognizing our need for him. But there's a second way that I think is practical, is depending not only on his wisdom, but depending on his strength. Because there's a limit to your ability. You're not Superman. There is a limit to your ability. And you probably face that every day. Where I, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I. And, and what he's saying is depend upon his strength. Depend upon his strength. Philippians 4, verse 13 says, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The psalmist David said, The Lord is my strength. That didn't mean that David didn't go do things, it didn't mean that he didn't go to war. But his mindset, his attitude was that God is my strength. Wow. And what is God's strength like? It's like omnipotent. It is like there is no limit. So how does that change the frame of my mind? Well, that gives me joy and peace and contentment. Because I'm walking in wisdom, and I'm walking in His strength. It's a great thing. And the final one is to walk in His provision. Because you always feel like I don't have what I need. I don't have enough. I, don't, I worry about the future. You know, when, you know, when you're young, you don't worry about it as much. You get older, you start kind of getting like, oh man, what are, what are we going to do? The Lord says, You trust in me. Depend on him to provide everything you need. Here's the verse Philippians 4, verse 19. And this same God who takes care of me, Paul is saying this, the same God who is taking care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches. Which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Here's the promise: I will supply everything you need. Would you say, Paul? The verse of the day was was the twenty third Psalm, and and it says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I have everything that I need." How can hey? I don't have everything I need. You have Him. You have Him. You have everything you need. He will take care of you. And here's what He's promised. I will give you the wisdom you need for every decision you need to make. I will show you the way to go. I will give you the strength to face anything that you face. And I will provide for every single need that you have in your life. Now, there are two what I call means of grace for the Christian, when I function through my day. The two means of grace are God's Word and prayer. God's Word, these verses speaking to me. That's why, you know what, I have memorized these. You know why I memorize them? It's because I don't always have my Bible with me to, <laughs> to walk through the day. But you know what, I can say, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, all your ways acknowledge Him, He'll direct your paths. I know these verses because I repeat them back to myself. I need them. So the Word of God will strengthen your heart with what God has promised you. And God cannot lie. He cannot fail. That's number one. Secondly is prayer. And I'm not talking about a flowery prayer. I'm talking about help, Lord. <laughs> help, Lord. I need wisdom today. I need strength today. I need provision today. You've made these promises. I'm asking. I need some help. And so when... when God is working in this way, practically, He will bring this to become a characteristic of your life. So, these are not things, a list beatitudes, you know, if I do this, this, and this, I'm going to be happy. No, no. You are happy as you follow Jesus, depending on Him for everything, for everything. For your wisdom, these are just three that I've mentioned, for your wisdom to know what to do, for your strength to be able to do it, and your provision to be able to have what you need. And when, when you recognize that and ask for that and God delivers on every promise, you're a happy person. And the world around you hasn't changed one bit. Now let me just share one thing with you before I conclude. And this is, this is kind of personal. When I was 18 years old, I, I kind of came to a lot of these truths and I said, Lord, I am going to follow you with my whole heart. And I had no confidence in my own ability. But over time, you know, you kind of like you have a high dependence on God and a very low confidence level. You know, when you start off, I have zero confidence. I have a very high dependence upon God. But as time goes on, you develop competencies. Are you with me? Skill sets of Christian living. And you know what? I know how to read my Bible. I know how to pray. I know how to do this. I know how to help people. And what happens, you don't realize this is happening is that, that you're becoming more and more confident on your spiritual Christian disciplines. And so you are, you are a more experienced Christian, but you are not a more spiritual Christian because your cup is empty. Well, it's actually full of you, which you're doing for God. And so God and His grace will bring a woe into your life <laughs> and He'll bless you again and fill that cup. So when crisis happens, difficulty happens, change, tragedy, don't interpret that as God has forgotten you or God doesn't like you or God is punishing you. Interpret this as God is wanting you to see your need for Him. Because when you feel and sense and know your need for Him, He will meet that. And you will have that kind of happiness. So here is what we conclude. The happy life is the life that is completely dependent upon God. Not just for eternal life, but for every day. Is that the way you're living? And if something has happened to you recently, have you interpreted that as God's love to bring you back to that happiness? Father, thank You for Your Word. Oh, thank You so much for this. Because we know that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes come from a heart of love that You have for us, that we be really happy in Jesus. And we thank You. In Christ's name, amen.